Welcome everybody to Way of the Blade, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Schneider, author of Way of the Blade, 100 of the Greatest Bloody Matches in Professional Wrestling, and a writer on the Sekunda Kaida blog. I am pleased to be joined today uh, by David Shoemaker, who is the head of wrestling content at The Ringer and Spotify, and was the masked man uh, back in the old Deadspin days, uh, doing their, in charge of their uh, wrestling obituaries, and has been, you know, a writer and a podcaster on this stuff for many years, and I'm a pleasure to have you, David. Dude, it is an honor to be here. I've been like so crazy busy over the past well six months, and more or less. Uh, but your book, like, I got it like the day it came out. It was delivered from Amazon, and it has just been like one of the true pieces of joy in my life uh, over the over the past several months. So I'm I'm so happy to be doing that. Oh, well, that's awesome! I uh, you know. It, when you write as long as I've been doing this stuff, you, in some ways you kind of just feel like it goes out into the ether. <laughs> like you just write it. And who knows yeah. if anybody reads or anybody can but so it's really great to hear. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I've, I've been obviously reading, reading and uh, listening to your stuff for, for decades as well. So it's kind of, uh, the, the joining of, uh, two powerful houses of wrestling commentary yeah, I- here from the, uh, way of the blade, uh, podcast. <laughs> That's great. Listen, I, and I, and I should say that like, I am at my heart not a not a like blood and guts wrestling guy, and I think it, it, and it's I, I'll watch anything. I don't turn it off, but you know, there's a lot. If, if you said, you know, if you're talking about Muda scale shit, and you're like, go watch this match or watch this clip because of the blood, there's no way in hell I will do it. But so so it, like when I heard about this book, my inclination was not to be like, oh, I definitely got to have that. You know, I'm not like putting it on the wall next to all my other like blood, but it is just. Like, this is blood the way it's meant to be done. This is, it's so good. And I love so many of these matches, just like without even thinking about them as bloody. It's just, it's, it's, this is, I'm excited to do this. And I'm excited to talk about, more importantly, Terry Funk and Ric Flair, right. one of the greatest beefs of all time. Right, which is the match we're talking about today. We're talking about uh, Ric Flair versus Terry Funk uh, from July 23rd, 1989, the Great American Bash, their first uh, singles match in their rivalry. Uh, that great 1989 rivalry they had two singles matches previous to this one in 1981 in all japan and one in toronto in 1983 so this isn't uh this feud which is a you know great incredible feud in wasn't something that even though these wrestlers had both been around and circling each other in the same territories in the same area for you know decades before this uh they didn't have a long history with each other previous to this feud, which is something I didn't think I realized until I started doing research, is you'd think, you know, Flair and Funk, they're both NWA champions, they're both guys who would have, would have you figure, would have had a run against each other in Georgia or run against each other in Mid-Atlantic or something like that, but really only ever wrestled twice before this, once in a tag match, uh, um, where Flair teamed with Rick Martel against Terry and Dory, and then they teamed together once in Florida uh, in 82, against Sweet Brown Sugar and Butch Reed, which, you know, I can add to the my gigantic a list of matches I probably will never see and I'm furious about never being able to see. Because I can imagine Flair Funk as a tag team against, like, Sweet yeah. Brown Sugar and Butch Reed would have been incredible. I think that's Skip. Yeah, it's great. Skip no, no, Young. No, that, that's amazing. 
I think that these two guys, I mean, these two guys, you're right. You, you like, it's almost like, uh, like something like you feel like you have some sort of like blind spot in your brain when you try to imagine what you try to re- remember what Terry Funk was doing in WCW, like six months before the flare feud. You're like, what was, well, how did he get here? And it's, he wasn't there. You know, he wasn't there. I mean, that's just like, he, he's, he's, uh, he's, 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 I mean, that sort of plays into their feud, right? Because WCW is now like a fully, like it, this is, this is the WCW enterprise and, and funk is like an NWA guy. And that leads to like sort of on screen and backstage drama that, that sort of fuels the whole thing too. Yeah. I mean, the th- he was functionally retired. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, uh, he did, he was in obviously in the WWF in 86 where he was sort of, you know, teaming with Dory and feuding with the junkyard dog um, you know, my, mm-hmm. my first experience with Terry Funk was that stuff, not your peak funk, your WWF 86, right. 86 WWF funk is not, you would not be a top 20 funk year. Uh, but you know, there's some fun stuff there for sure. And then pretty much after that, he leaves the WWF. He works a tournament in Puerto Rico in, uh, September 86. He does an all Japan tour in, uh, in October and November and December 86. He shows up for two, three matches in Florida in, uh, in August 87. Does another All Japan, does another one shot in Puerto Rico, does another, uh, and does another All Japan tour. And that's it. Uh, he worked an AWA show in 89, early before 89, a couple of shows in Florida in 89, but basically wasn't very inactive. Between 86 and 89, right? Was in Hollywood doing movies. And that's kind of the idea of the setup of this match is they flare wrestle Steamboat and defeats him. And this was a situation, and they had these three judges, and Funk kind of interrupts the inner post match interview and, you know, mm-hmm. with Flair and says, you know, I, I'd love to, I'd love to be the next challenger. And Flair goes, look, you, Terry, you're not even really a wrestler anymore. You're, you're retired. Yeah. You're, you're, you're down in, you're down in Hollywood making movies with Sylvester Stallone. Uh, you know, I can't yeah. just give you a title shot and then Funk Apollo does the kind of, you know, abashed Terry Funk thing of apologizing and then the insane Terry Funk thing of jumping him and then pile driving him on the table. Uh, the, the, my fa- There's so much good in that promo. Uh, when he comes in, I mean, in just a sort of like subtle way that they plug him in as a judge, you know, and it's just like, he is functionally retired. That sort of makes sense. And Terry Funk is sort of looked, I mean, at this stage of his, of his career, he looks fully like 25 and 65 at the same time, which is sort of like the Terry Funk thing. So he passes for like a retired judge. But my favorite part of the whole thing is when he apologizes, when he was like, no, I was just joking, which is totally unnecessary, right? Like it could be, you could just be like, all right, well, F you and punch him in the face. But he he's like, oh, no, I was just joking, which is just it's that little piece of Terry Funk is not mentally stable sort of that drives the whole feud. Because there's so much about and we'll talk about this in the match. There's so much about legacy and like the significance of the Funk family. But so they can't paint Funk as like like a diabolical like monster villain, right? He's like, he has a history. He's a human being, but he's crazy, right? Like he's not, it it doesn't all make a lot of sense. And that's, that's like really key here. And it's a different kind of wrestling crazy, right? It's not, uh, I'm, uh, Abdullah the butcher 
And it's not right. that I'm a psych, you know, like Norman the Lunatic, I think, was around in the you know, It's a different kind of thing. It's Terry Funk. I think I said in the book something along the lines of he's like a guy who, uh, like a mechanic who got out of prison for three years for assault, who you're going to have a very pleasant time with having a beer at the bar. But, you know, there's a chance that he might just snap and try to stab you in the neck with a beer bottle. Like, yes. a, maybe a 10% chance, but a chance, and that's always part of it, right? Like, uh, Terry's a great guy. I love Terry. But, man, Terry sometimes, yeah. if he has a beer or two, you know, you got to watch out. He's got a temper, Terry. Like, that kind of crazy. Where It's like, I, you know, it, most of the time you love a guy. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I played rugby in college. I had friends like that. Whereas, like, most of the time, yeah. these guys are great. A guy named Dangerous Dave, who was, like, a British guy yeah. I played rugby with. Like, that lovely guy 93% of the time. But there was one time in in uh, in Wales where he just headbutted me in the face for no reason. You know, it's just like, yeah, that's going to happen, right? He's gonna, And Terry's yeah. a little like that, right? Where it's like, yeah, man, he, what, a, what a delight. I had such a pleasant dinner with him and his wife. And then we went to the bar and had a couple of beers. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden he's taking a cue stick up beside some guy's head. And that guy apparently has been his friend for 30 years. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I long, long ago, I was writing about the road warriors and, and talking about like the, the importance of a manager to like a monster heel or a mo- like this sort of like monster character. And I was like, what these managers, what, what Paul Ellering did and what every manager since then has done with guy with all the guys like the ones you mentioned is answer the question, like, do the road warriors have a checking account? Right. Like, the, like the question that you, that you don't want to have to deal with. Now they bring Gary Hart into into this angle, and the JTEX Corporation becomes, for a brief shining moment, just like exactly what you need it to be. But Gary Hart's not—I mean, Gary Hart's managed a lot of dudes who weren't just like strictly monsters. Although you know, he, he, he did—he did work with a, with a very notorious monster. But the, but he but he's not Terry Funk. The point is, Terry Funk doesn't need him to cash his checks, right? He doesn't need him to figure out how to get to the arena, right? right? How, how, but, how, how did Kamala get here? Kamala got here, right? Like, somebody right. drive Kamala here, right? And he, he, Mr. Fuji made sure he got in the car and put a seatbelt on. And... Exactly, but he doesn't, but, but Terry Funk's not that kind of villain. He is a straight up, like, guy who's like, ter- who, who just, he's done, I mean, he is all that you would possibly want out of a wrestler in the ring. And what, and then in this feud, he shows you that he can do a lot more than just wrestle in the ring. Yeah, I mean, I have, he's my number one. Terry Funk. He's my alt. He is. If you, if I make the list of the greatest wrestlers of all time I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of them, right? Maybe more than as much. I probably watch as much footage as anybody ever. Uh, I have Terry Funk as my number one. And I think, if, I it, think that, I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. I think that from, I mean, I come from a much more kind of blindered perspective, I think than, than most, than, than you might. I mean, we probably, you know, came up pretty similarly, but I was watching, you know, I, I, for the longest time, could only view things through a WWF or, WW, or WCW perspective, you know? And, of course, I watched World Class growing up and, and, and Memphis and everything. I mean, I understood those weren't national promotions to the extent that the other two were. So Terry Funk is a tough one in terms of just, like, he doesn't have a 10-year run in one of the major promotions. But, like, if, you're, if you can set that aside, which anybody should be able to do, then he absolutely deserves to be in the, to- in, in the discussion for best. I mean, he's... Uh, uh, well, he had, a, well, he had a ten-year run. It was just like 1972 to 1982. Before, you know, like that was, that, that's the thing about his ten-year run, right? He was, it's like he had this whole he had this whole like thing where he retires in Japan in like 1981, and then you yeah. know has another 30 years after he retires as, a, as an active, entertaining wrestler. I mean, there are good Terry Funk matches in the 2010s. 
You know, like there's something. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a guy who, who stayed at, stayed entertaining to watch into well into his sixties. Um, and it's then so, you 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 watch this. You watch a match in 1989, and he he looked the same for so long. Like I said, you watch this, this these 89 matches, and you're and, and I find myself being like, yeah, this would be a good moment to pull out the moonsault, you know. <laughs> but like the the moonsault wasn't in his repertoire yet, you know. Like he like he he evolved in a very kind of like in a way that just made a lot of sense over the years to the to the they never felt like until the very end never felt like a man out of time or anything you know yeah, and it was it was 7 years until the moon salt right i mean it wasn't like he had the moon yeah. i mean the moon salt that was that was ecw stuff and you yeah, know he exactly. had he had, had he would he had you know two Two relatively long WCW. I mean, he was around in WCW a lot in the 80s and 90s, right? He had that run yeah. in 94. I mean, he's in my book a ton, and there's none of those matches are similar. Like, the performances are very different. He doesn't repeat spots. I mean, it's not, you know, you watch a Rick, you, watch, you know, love Ric Flair, but, you know, the Ric Flair, there's a lot of, you can kind of, Ric Flair is like watching is like reading a Spencer novel or something like that. You yeah. know, at at some point Hawk is going to show up, but you know, at some point he's going to have dinner with with Susan Silverman and he's going to talk about the dog. I mean, there's like it's there's very familiar things about them every time you read mm-hmm. one of them or or watch a Ric Flair match where it's like you know you know kind of know what to expect. It's not always going to be the same, and there are certainly lots of very different totally. Flair performances. But the and the, but Funk, I don't I don't know. I mean, I you know he's got five or six matches in my book. I don't think. No, if he repeats a spot in any of them, I mean, and he, Funk, and he plays Funk completely different roles. Oh yeah, I mean, it, 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 I mean, I love when Flair gets the you know Flair Flair gets uh, puts away the toys and gets out there and has a fight. Uh, the yeah. Ricky Ricky Morton ma- match, which is in the book as well, another example of Flair getting out there and you know fighting. Right, isn't going to be that's, isn't going to necessarily do the comedy spots. Isn't going to like you know. Do all that kind of stuff. He's just gonna get there and throw. Yeah, the Ricky Morton match is, is a formative one for me, just because I that's one of the first matches. Not the, one of the first, but that is a match that I can very clearly still evoke the, the like the emotion that I felt when Ric Flair was like terrorizing him in the locker room. You know, like it was a, it was a like that. I just was so emotionally invested in that match for whatever reason. But to your to your earlier point about about Funk not having similar matches. I mean, you can just compare, you can just compare the great American bash match to the I quit match. And those matches between funk and flair are so dramatically different. Right. I mean, it's like, there's so much at stake. I mean, it's the same story, but like, even there there's, it's, it, it just feels like a very different thing, you yeah, know? I mean, and totally. And they had a bunch of house show matches <laughs> against each yeah. other. And it's like, I imagine just them working and, you know, uh, this, you know, I worked a, you know, Buffalo, and then they had a show mm-hmm. in Rod. They had a match in Rochester the next day. I bet those matches are different. I bet Syracuse, Troy, Syracuse, Buffalo, and Rochester. They had a run in upstate New York at the end of uh, at the end of uh, September, beginning of October '89. I bet all of those matches were different. Uh, yeah, it, you know, I bet that I bet his Texas death in Norfolk was different than his Texas death in Pittsburgh, and that sort of that '89, the '89 house show footage uh, is something that I imagine. You know, I imagine it's I, I think a ton of it is sitting in the vaults of the of WWE. Uh, I know yeah. that a lot of their Omni shows are, and I imagine some of this other stuff is too. And that really is like dream stuff. I mean, I can imagine. Can you imagine what a what Flair Funk Texas Death was like in this period? 
incredible. I, right. I don't. I, I have. I, I I would love to see how all out they went because you know they weren't worrying about playing to the cameras even at the big you know even at the starcades or whatever. So I bet it was just insane every night, and it would just be really crazy to see to see how far they took it. I would I would love to do that. Yeah, I mean this this I'm looking at you know cage match now, which is something where they end up doing a lot of these podcasts uh, and just sort of looking over what what you had, uh, what your sort of funk in. In NWA, Rex wasn't very long. He wasn't wrestling there a lot. He had, you know, maybe six six months uh, before. I mean, he was out. He was gone uh, by the end of '89, right? He was this. So this was yeah, six months by the end of '89. He was he was working USWA and back in all Japan. So he his his this this run was six months. But he had matches against Sting. He had matches against Bryant Pillman. House show matches. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a bunch of, he had a bunch of really fun, like TV squashes, including one against a really young, his actual first match in WC. Did you know this? This was his first match in WCW was against in this run in 89? No. Who was it? Eddie Guerrero. So early young Eddie oh. Guerrero working as a, as like a, a, uh, an enhancement guy in WCW in 89, Terry Funk, Eddie Guerrero. That's on YouTube. It's it's a great five minute match. You watch it and go, oh man, Eddie Guerrero, <laughs> like, you know, that's awesome. Physically, they really re- this, this period of 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 uh, Terry Funk, like he physically reminds me of like of Eddie Guerrero and his like kind of peak WWE days. It's, yeah. it, that that's that's really just interesting. Yeah, and a couple house show matches against Dick Murdoch. Albuquerque and Corpus Christi. I mentioned those were incredible. It really is this like if you, this period, this fuck period, we got a lot of cool stuff that made TV, but just like the 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 stuff that didn't make TV, you imagine, oh man, incredible. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. Uh, but yeah, that was the only time uh, Teddy, Terry Funk ever wrestled any girl. It was like in '89. I mean, again, there were guys who you know sometimes you'll see these things where you'll have guys that you would expect. To have wrestled each other, or expect to have wrestled each other more, and just for whatever reason, never did. You know, even though they were around the same area. I mean, you saw this recently in AW. You know, CM Punk and, and Eddie Kingston mm-hmm. never had a match against each other before. They had the one yeah. on their pay per view, and those guys, you know, they were all in the same indies for you know a decade, right? Like at no point yeah. did anybody did CZW ever book that or or Chikara ever book it or you know whatever random northeastern indie promotion was going on never booked that. Aja Kong, I mean, I'm, Aja Kong never had a singles match against Shinobu Kandori. And you figure those two ladies beating the hell out of each other? Why wouldn't somebody book that at some point in the 20 yeah. years that they're all around the same place? I mean, in some ways, like, I think of that because of Funk Flair, like having so little interaction with each other before this feud, it's just kind of weird. Because you figure, I mean, Flair was it, obviously famously a guy. Very, the, no, I mean, it, it is super weird. You see him together and. Talking about, I mean, you know, people never having matches together and stuff. You, you, when you see Funk and Flair in the ring together, it just, they look like action figures that came out of the same box, right? They look right. like they belong together. They're like physically the same size. It's like when, um, it's like I was, I, I had that feeling when like I started imagining an Andrade Kenny Omega match. I was like, oh, these two guys physically fit together so well. I don't know if they're going to have chemistry, but I just desperately need to see them do a thing, right? And that's and and these two guys, they look like they belong together. Like you, you would just you'd be forgiven if you thought that they coexisted for a decade in the NWA or WCW, and they they didn't. It was right. just this moment, right? And especially because if you think of Flair in the 
beginning part of the 80s when he had the NWA title. I mean, he was such a touring guy. At this point, he wasn't a yeah. touring guy anymore. But like, you know, 84, 85, 87, I mean, he would just, he'd just be in a different town every night wrestling a different wrestler. He didn't have nearly the number of co- a commonality of opponents, right? He would wrestle Nikita a bunch or he'd wrestle Ricky Morton a bunch, but he'd also be wrestling cousin uh, Luke or he'd be wrestling like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Johnny Rich. I mean, it's just like, you know, you just have these matches with so many random people over the, you know, the years. Like, at no point nobody ever booked these two guys in Bayamone, Puerto Rico. You know, like, well, you listen, know. yeah, it's a good question. I wonder, I mean, I, you know, I, this, there could be an, an obvious answer to this that I don't know. But, I mean, obviously, Terry Funk does not need to work heel. But it does feel like that there's this just like bright, shining moment, this very specific moment in time in WCW post, post Ricky Steamboat feud where they're just like, could we get Flair over as a baby face? And, and, there, and who the hell would be able to pull that off? Like, who are we going to put opposite him that, that could really make that work? And I don't know if, for whatever reason, they were smart enough to, to you know, call Terry Funk's number. Maybe it just, maybe the stars just hadn't aligned before. But it does seem crazy that, they, that there hadn't just been an accidental encounter between the two of them. Yeah. Um, and this period, 89, you know, we were talking a little about this before the podcast started. You know, I was uh, 13 in 1989, right? And I think that that age is the age where things, like, really imprint on you, right? Like, you, you know, that's the mu- mm. music, movies, TV, uh, you know, like, you know, the stuff that's the greatest stuff for you is the stuff that was in when you were 13, right? And, I, and so in some ways, 89 NWA is the stuff that I – what's the best wrestling ever it's that and that and i think part of you know the way a 13 year old who's who's 13 now when he's in his 40s will say it's aw or it's wwe or whatever uh i think that this was the stuff that really like you know impacted me and i i every time i come back to it it's like such a warm familiar feeling to watch terry funk cut a promo on rick flair or watch ricky steamboat come out with his kid in the in the dressed in the dragon outfit or watch uh you know the the road warriors or the steiners or or that whole the, all those guys i mean their roster in 89 was just incredible when you think of the talents of guys on that roster even it, you know the top guys and even the you know bottom guys. we mentioned you know f- you know funk had these matches with dick murdoch it wasn't like dick murdoch was doing a ton in 89 in uh nwa but he was there he was around 89 like dick murdoch you call call dick murdoch's number you could call eddie gilbert's number you call tommy rich's number i mean those guys are some of the all-time greats and they were just kind of hanging out right you know yeah yeah some of the all-time greats an incredible accumulation of talent and also i mean listen brian pillman you know i mean guys like pillman and 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 well you mentioned guerrero's you know there for a second but but uh uh like eddie gilbert and all, you know there's all these dudes who are like supremely talented who happened to be there and then there's also just a ton of these dudes who are the best possible version of themselves right like at their actual peak at that point in time i mean this is i think it's pretty muda this is muda oh yeah at his peak uh i think but yeah like terry gordy was around you know yeah uh uh, butch reed buzz sawyer i mean there's dude all of the varsity club guys uh you know you mentioned the road warriors i mean i would I think you could argue this is this is like Lex Luger's peak, and this is I mean Sting. This is 
this is kind of peak sting, pre-crow sting at least, you know, but an in-ring sting, this is about as good as it gets, you know? And, maybe, and, and maybe, 90, maybe 92. Well, no, 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 I, no, no, I think of like, era. You're right, yeah. you're right. It gets, it, gets, it gets a lot, you know, it gets better with him and Flair. But, but, but yeah, I mean, there's just so much, the Steiner brothers, are just, I mean, there's just so much talent here. Yeah, I mean, if you think about that, uh, you know, that Stark, the Starcade uh, that, that came up, and I don't think that really worked, Starcade 89, as an idea. But uh, yeah. if you think about, like, who you had in Starcade 89, it's like in this sort of uh, round robin thing. Sting, Luger, Flair, Muda, uh, Doom, Steiner Brothers, Road Warriors, Wild Samoans. Wild Samoans replacing the skyscrapers. I mean, unbelievable, mm-hmm. right? If you think of those those four singles wrestlers, those four teams as your guys you could do a round robin with. Like I said, I don't think it really worked as a as a concept yeah. particularly well, but man, just the fact that you could book that and have those guys have you know, I I, I don't you know, it, it is it's it, I don't know how much I mean there's other period WCW is like as a as an idea and a promotion, when you talk about like talent rosters. I mean, there are a lot of other times you'd look at talent rosters in WCW and go, oh my God, you know, 92 or, or, uh, or just, you know, like 97 where they'd have some of the, you know, greatest wrestlers in the world would be working pro matches for four. And that's all they'd ever do. Right. Like, you know, I could make a list of L dandy matches for you to watch and you'd be like, Oh my God, L Dandy's the greatest wrestler I've ever seen. And L <laughs> dandy was in WCW in, in uh, 1997. And the best you might get is a, a five minute match against Viano four or something like that. A WCW pro, <laughs> um, you know, they'd have to get, so, uh, so there are other times. is is a promotion that really, I think knew how to scout, scout and use talent really well, even though certainly there are periods where you could look at WCW and go, what is this booking? But they always know how to get guys, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad that El Dandy made an appearance in this, uh, in, in, in this conversation. I mean, it's, never, we're, it's never there. And we're, it's never an A-plus podcast <laughs> unless El Dandy comes up. So that's, that's <laughs> El Dandy's in the book. Uh, you I know, know. Twice. He's uh, El Dandy made two appearances in Way of the Blade. He's uh, got his uh, uh, hair match against Parada Morgan, and then the uh, the hair versus mask match against Elhio de Santo. Have you ever seen the hair yeah, versus the mask ha- match against Elhio de Santo? Oh yeah, I went. I mean, I, I've watched. I, there was a, there was a period. I mean, frankly, it was not too long ago where I watched as many hair versus ma- mask matches as I could find on YouTube. I mean, it was a long stretch of my dark deep dark stretch of my life but it's it, that's it's really incredible yeah. but it, but the craziest thing for me and i sort of joke about it is like when you start when i when you watch when you watch peak l dandy when you watch l dandy all these crazy matches and you're just like was bret hart kind of being serious about l dandy when he said who are you to doubt l dandy because i because <laughs> at the time i just thought that was straight up shtick like i don't it was it's kind of nuts man unclear i mean I, my I, i'd make the if I, maybe there's a podcast in this at some day, but you could do a career career of Bret Hart El Dandy, and it's it's not clear that it's Bret Hart. I mean, you could there's an argument for El Dandy when you're looking at when you could do a career versus career for like just obviously not Bret Hart was a, a more iconic figure, although El Dandy was a pretty biggest star in Mexico, not to the level that Bret Hart was in America, but for just in ring stuff, you could do a top ten. And there's that, that that you don't come you wouldn't come away with a top ten for both guys thinking that's a blowout for Bret Hart. 
Uh, you know, so I'm just, I'm just saying. I love where we are. That's fantastic. All right. This is what I do. It's like, I'm the guy who's going to make this argument. I know argument. it is. I know. That's why I'm happy to be here. Um, but so let's get back to, let's get, let's get into the match a little bit here. I don't think we've actually talked about the in-ring bell-to-bell part of this match yet. You've got this let's incredible Terry Funk entrance, right? Where it's mean, just the entrances in this alone, right? With Funk coming in, uh, to man with a harmonica. Morricone from uh, Once Upon a Time in the Wild. I mean, just, you know, it's a perfect, perfect use of music for Funk to oh, come yeah. in. He comes running down in the, you know, with the blue cowboy hat and blue thing and run, you know, the crowd booing him. And then, of course, Flair comes out with, in a, in a classic Flair entrance with, you know, what is it? I think he has four, four, four beautiful 1989 hair. Ladies, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the moose in the hair of the Ric Flair ladies in 89 was high and uh, intense. Uh, and the yeah. veneers on their teeth. I mean, just like a classic 89 uh, uh, spokesmodels. Uh, and then, you know, it, you, you think you're going to come in. You're kind of expecting this to be like a show. You're coming off these Flair Steamboat matches. Where you're kind of, you, in some ways, you're kind of expecting it to be a little bit like those, right? And it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a very different kind of match. Like Funk, you know, Flair barely gets his robe off, and they are just going at it. Funk, I, yeah. I mean, they're they're punching they're punching each other like literally ten seconds after. I mean, after after they get in the ring, it's it's crazy. I mean, um, Funk just doesn't. Eat. Funk just walks to the outside and says, "Let's not. We're not yeah. doing this in here. We're doing this out here." And then they do it out there. And Flair gets after him. Um, I had that note. This is this is the precursor to to Hell in a Cell. You know, like you know, the story, the famous story is that is that Mick Foley got the idea to start the Hell in a Cell match on the top from from Funk because he was like, how can we top what Brett? I mean, what Sean and Taker did, and and he said, just start on top. This is what this is the this is this is the precursor. This is let's just start on the outside. Let's just start punching each other. Yeah. And it's it's a uh, it's one of the few times where I mean, not few times, but it's it's a really like pristine version of. The the energy of a match really encapsulating what the feud had been to that point. Like you feel like it's it it feels very logical that they're fighting the way that they're fighting, and then they're and then Flair's so full of himself, and uh, and Funk's just like sort of like you know once Flair gets back in the ring, it's sort of like moving or is you know just going like just being unhinged outside. The right, ring. tries tries to start like the, six fights with the audience before Flair's in the yeah. ring, right? Like, oh, Funk's not happy just it's, fighting Flair. He's got to fight the everybody who bought a first row ticket too. I mean, you know, which yeah. is which is yeah, that's it. This is Terry Funk, right? They they wound him up, and now they got to let him go. And he kind of, he like he yeah. does this great the great thing where he like gets a chair to throw into the ring at, at Flair the first time he just throws it right into the ropes. <laughs> like, oh, and smacks himself in the yeah, face. Yeah. No, and that, and that, and the, and and just, I mean this is so minute. But right before that, remember Flair rolled him into the ring to get him back in, and ro- and he just kept rolling and went out the other side of the ring just to like stay outside, just to like pro- I mean it was like. Funk in the moment might have been the only one of the two of them that realized how <laughs> the reaction that he was getting from the crowd was going to pay off. But he, but it was like he was intent on just dragging this this introductory section out as long as he could, and it really works. Yeah, it's he's, I mean, Funk is yeah, he's just so he is Flair's great in this match, but goddamn Terry Funk, I mean, he's just so incredible. He's so much fun to watch in this period where he just like, you know, there's he, literally there. there 
there's there's nobody in the world. I mean, I I would love to see this period Terry Funk against literally every wrestler that I've ever loved. Like this, it's he's just so great. Yeah, I can't I can't imagine a bad ma- match with any. I mean, even guys, even guy, you know, yeah. What would what would Terry Funk look like against El Hijo de Santo? in arena mexico oh. in this period right <laughs> or what would terry funk look like uh you know i mean you see him in, in, in uh what he looks like when he wrestles in like all japan he can he's perfectly capable of hanging in that style right he you know mm-hmm. we, we you've, he's had such a long career so in some ways you get to, you've gotten to see him against so many of the great wrestlers of all time right um you know i think he ha- i think i'm pretty sure and this is something i gotta remember i could this is the answerable question i think he had a CM Punk match, you know, he was, when he was, when he was, um, you know, a little, obviously much older, but he's got to wrestle yeah. a bunch of these, even sort of the, the next generation after this, or even the next generation after that wrestlers. Um, oh, absolutely. And even in, but I mean, listen, like you said, you think he would have wrestled somebody. I mean, you think he would have wrestled everybody at some point, but man, there's, I don't think that he, ne- he never wrestled like Randy Savage. Like I would love to see like 89, like Savage Funk, you know, oh like there's God. just so many, I mean, there's just so many dream matches that that just never, that for whatever reason, never exist. Yeah, he did. I I, he, I remember this. I was at ROH show. He, he worked Terry Funk at ROH show. I mean, he worked CM Punk in oh ROH God. show in 2003, and then randomly two tag matches in TNA in 2004, teaming with, where Punk was teaming with Julio De Niro against Terry Funk and the Sandman and Raven and Terry. Oh I don't know what I'm going to revisit 2004 TNA. I've got a long list of things that I want to watch that are ahead of me on ahead of the list of 2004 uh, TNA. But I can imagine those must have been pretty fun. Yeah, he did never wrestle Savage. That's crazy. Um, uh, he wrestled. Uh, he teamed with Savage um, in uh, against Junkyard Dog and Tito Santana at the Cow Palace in '85. Why wasn't I at that show? Uh, I grew up in that's I, crazy. I should that really. It, I'm really mad at uh, at my dad for not taking me to <laughs> Savage Funk Junkyard Dog T Santana at the Cow Palace in '85. Feels like we. Why did? Why, why was that the show we skipped? And they worked a battle. I have no idea. That's incredible. That sounds like. I mean, that's just a hell of a match right there. You know, we we should. I mean, we got to keep talking about this about this match. But obviously, like the one of the like one big thing that those two guys have in common. Uh, Savage and Funk is that they both they the, the two of them both claim or both have claimed to pioneering the the pile driver onto the like uh, unbreakable wooden table spot outside the ring. That's and right, the originators uh, of the table spot, baby. I mean, I you know yeah. you keep discovering more stuff, right? So it's like you know uh, one of the things that we've been doing over at uh, Saguna Kaida, my blog, is we've been digging into this uh, French catch footage from the 1950s. We have, we have all of this footage from 1950s all the way to the, the early 80s. And one thing you watch that is you keep discovering that moves you thought got invented in, in the 1990s, actually got invented by French guys in the 1950s. Like that, yeah. ro- that runner, that power bomb. It's like, oh, no, that... You know, I thought the first guy to do a, you know, this move with a tombstone powder was Don Morocco, but it actually was, uh, was, um, you know, Rene Ben Shamul in 1957. Oh, right. So I'm still <laughs> expecting it in one of his French footage to come across somebody getting put through a table. Uh, but as far as I know, like the first one I can remember is probably, right, the uh, Paf, uh, Pafo and Savage against the Rock and Roll Express in it, Memphis. I don't know. I don't know if that was the first. I've read that that was the first, but but regardless, 
that was if you go back and watch i'm pulling it up now if you go back and watch uh it's it's on youtube if you go back and watch that match it looks like the crowd reacts like like randy savage is committing murder (laughs) like it is just an incredible moment and you don't think about it and when and when when funk did that to flair i mean i don't know what the idea was but it's I think it, like, it doesn't go off, right? Obviously, from today's eyes, you think the table didn't break. Well, that table wasn't going to break, right? But Terry sort of rolls over backwards after the spot and almost falls off the table. And you, you realize watching this that one of Terry Funk's greatest gifts is the fact that he kind of looks uncoordinated with everything that he does. I mean, it's like, like every time he did a moonsault later in his career, it kinda, you kind of thought he might land on his head, right? That's what makes it so real and so sort of like, effective in some way. And that pile driver was the same way. It looked like he was like, whatever, like it's not the most devastating version of the pile driver, except that it just kind of looks like he might accidentally kill somebody. And he, and it's really, really effective the way he just sort of, he, he put flair out and it's totally understandable why somebody who's been watching flair wrestle, uh, in the South, in the, in, in the, you know, Crockett territory for the past several years would be emotionally attached to the dude when someone comes in and tries to kill him. And it, it's this whole feud. is just like, it just, it just sings because of that. Right. This is Flair's first match after that. Flair's got Flair's yeah. out for, you know, like three or four months. Um, and you know, the out idea, my- the idea is that he might have to retire. Like funk might've yes. damaged his neck to the point where he might never wrestle again. And that was a part of the, you know, part of the, television for that period was terry funk kind of running wild on tv calling flair out calling him a coward uh you know uh and uh you know beating up ricky steamboat and beating up sting and beating up eddie guerrero (laughs) you know just killing everybody and calling flair out and flair the question is is flair gonna come back and he does the kind of similar thing he did in the vader feud a little couple years later where he he does the kind of abashed rick flair like oh you know I understand that you yeah. know, I just I'm a guy who loves loves wrestling and loves the fan, you know, loves being part of this whole world, and I don't know if I can do it anymore. And well, he's good at a bad. Yeah, I mean, I prefer they're, they're coked out Ric Flair talking about <laughs> his seven hundred dollars socks. That's my favorite Ric Flair, but he's great at a bashed Ric Flair too. No, well, but, but that this helps establish the like the like the you know the full body of the Flair personality, personality, right? Like without this, the other one can't fully exist. Right. Or not, not as a, not in a, in a human way. There's also a part of the story. I think this is from. I think this is in Terry Funk's book, where he was right when he was cutting all these promos while Flair was out hurt. Like they, he actually was like told he had to like tame them, like make them more tame because he was actually offending Ric Flair or potentially like hurting the Flair <laughs> legacy. And the story, I think again, I think this is the way that Terry Funk tells it. Is it like Flair was because he was actually at home selling the injury, so he wasn't on the road, and so by and so de facto he was looped out of the booking meetings where he had been part of the booking committee, and he thought, and I think that Flair thought that they were like all having a big laugh writing these Flair takedown promos while he was gone, and he called in, he was just like, guys, this is really hurting my feelings, <laughs> like whatever. <laughs> so like they had to, he had to tone them down. But but this, but that whole period is so good. I mean, and, and Terry Funk is just he's just so believable. I mean, we all know Terry Funk is just the best. Yeah, he's so good. Gary Hart's really. I mean, Gary Hart is a is an amazing. I mean, I don't think Gary Hart gets enough credit for being incredible too. I love Gary Hart in this period. He's he's not as he's like a great sort of like uh, cold counterpart to Terry Funk running so hot in those promos. 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, and he's he was such a believable. Gary Hart was so believable at the thing that he did as this uh, Chicago street guy with a straight razor and a sock, who uh, who you know very different kind of bar fight interaction with Terry Funk. Terry Funk has too many beers and he's going to break a beer bottle and try to hit you over there with a pool cue. Um, uh, Gary Hart <laughs> has too many Corvassiers and quietly uh, you, you don't even know what's going on. All of a sudden the, yes. your face is cut from the straight razor. You're like a different kind of dangerous guy, this, right? Like, you, dude, this is, that is exactly what I was going to say. He's the guy that you look up and you realize he's smiling at you. And then you see the blood running down in front of your eyes. Like yes. it is just like, that is Gary Hart. That's the, that's the perfect way to describe him. There's a Twitter feed. That's just Gary. That just somebody tweets out Gary Hart promos. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the feed. It's one of my favorite Twitter feeds. It's like, you know, every two or three times a day, it's 90 seconds of a Gary Hart promo. Well worth, well worth a, 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 a positive addition to it. Twitter. It's got, got its negatives and positives. But the Gary Hart Twitter feed of just Gary Hart talking about uh, what uh, Al Perez is going to do to Jimmy Valiant or whatever. Well worth, uh, well worth the uh, follow. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to have to find that. Yeah, it's so good. Um, but yeah, so the, that whole act, and you know, when bringing in Muda later was really good. At some point, I think, I don't know, I think GTEx ran out of steam a little bit. Um, I think at the end, you know, Ken, you're bringing in Kendo Nagasaki. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anytime, anytime you're swapping out too many members, and then you're sort of like trying to stay with this like really specific shtick of like who, who can make up the team. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's always, these things always run out of steam. Um, not always, not if you're the four horsemen, but that's obviously a totally different thing. And even that runs out of steam. They got to reboot it all the time. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, Dick, Sla- this Dick Slater is... was a nice addition. Uh, the point is fun oh, was, Slater... well, the music Dick thing Slater about fuck being cement, uh, suspended and then you just bring a Dick Slater, who's basically just a guy who's does Terry Funk. <laughs> like, you know? yeah. like, like we can't get, we can't get ACDC, but we got. DCAC, an ACDC cover band, to play this instead. Uh, so we could get Fuck suspended, so we're going to get Dick Slater, which is, you know, that's 70% of Terry Funk. It is. It's a solid, it's a solid 70% of Terry Funk. And Dirty Dick Slater is another one where, like, he was wrestling all over the place, all over the world. But, like, at the time, like, I, if you had told me he was just a full-time employee of, the, of WCW and I was just miss, missing the episodes when he was wrestling, I would have believed it. Yeah, look at a lot. I got a lot of time for dirty. I mean, when you're as big a funk fan as me, it's like, all right, well, this guy's not funk. You know, Rick By James way, isn't uh, Prince, but he's still Rick James. You know, it's like, you know, it's good oh thing. my, yes, exactly. Um, oh my gosh! By the way, so I have the match that we're discussing on in the background as I'm talking. Me too. And I completely forgot. I completely forgot about Jason Hervey's presence at ringside and how he's just like his giant head is just in the shot for <laughs> right, almost this the was entire your Jason match. Hervey period, where it was just like this thing, yeah. kid from the Wonder Years was like, I guess buddies with Eric Bischoff or something like that. Just <laughs> well, he ended up being. I mean, now they're still production partners. I don't. I feel like he predated Bischoff's presence in WCW, but maybe not. He's just. It's just kind of nuts that like the, the the older brother from the Wonder Years is a it's just a peak celebrity that you <laughs> for them to throw the rings at. Right, it's a little he's, bit. He's, you know, the difference between WC, you know, like WF would you know Aretha Franklin and Muhammad Ali, uh, yeah. WCW and David Allen Coe and the kid from the Wonder <laughs> Years, a different level of celebrity. Not a not a. Uh, there's so I'm watching it right now. I'm just watching. Yeah, he, he does have a gigantic head. 
Look at the size of that thing. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> looks like, oh a, my god. Looks like so, a lollipop. So here's what I love about this match. If I can get if I could just say like I, this uh, this is very obvious if you've seen the match like I'm not saying anything new. But the they for a match that gets as bloody as it does. They're remarkable this whole feud. They're remarkably reserved with the bloodletting, right? In their I quit match there is a Pile driver onto the concrete. There's a there's a microphone to the headshot. There's and they never bleed, right? right. They're like it's this the is reason the, it's this. not in the book, right? I mean, it would definitely be in the book, even if I got a little blood, right? I have had some matches in the book that yeah. are just a bloody nose. It usually is just like blood was, you know, if it was necessary, but you know that was all. It just, I, all I needed was a little bit. Um, that probably was a TBS thing, right? Yeah, but 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 regardless, this is a match where they do. There's, they put heads to ring posts. They do the pile drivers. They do everything in the world, but but I'm pretty sure the branding iron gets gets is is the tool of the bloodletting on both of them. Right. right? It's a very specific like like they they defined this match very precisely as it went along, you know. And uh, and then of course after the after the the branding iron you know gets involved, then it's just really brutal punches and forearms and stuff to the to the. <laughs> <laughs> to the open wounds throughout the rest of the match. And it, it's, uh, I mean, it's just like, you know, this, some of the most just disturbing, you know, just, just, just hard contact onto blood punches and, and, and blows as you can imagine, but it is so good and so compelling. And flair, of course, you know, the, the, that is one of the iconic images of, uh, in wrestling or even sports, right? Your Ric Flair, platinum blonde hair uh stained with blood right yeah. i mean I, just the number of wrestling magazine covers over the years that i you know and and you know and in and, and the sort of moments where you'd see flair do that i mean it, and and fuck obviously a great a great all-time bleeder too but flair like yeah. the visual of flair with just you know that hair or that you know and how it would just get eventually more and more covered with red uh, the yellow would get more and more covered with red as a match would go on. I mean, you know, could very, very memorable uh, for totally, sure. Totally, totally. It's, 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 yes. And it's not, I mean, this, like you said, not unique to this match. It is like they wasn't in their other big match in this feud, but, but it's, you know, Ric Flair is selling the neck in this match, right? I mean, the whole premise is that he almost got put out with a neck injury and they work at the beginning of the match. And then at some point when he starts bleeding, the sort of, you know, the 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 forehead sort of metaphorically becomes the hurt neck, right? It's all about just the blood that's on display at that point. And then when he gets his licks in, Funk starts bleeding. Uh, you really, really feel it. I mean, this is one of those like, you, you don't need to say over and over again about you know about matches earning that sort of bloodletting or whatever. But this is just like I, I just this match is just poetry, man. I mean, they just do it exactly. I mean, they they paste it out exactly right, and the blood just. It it's it just means everything. It's yeah. really crazy. Yeah. Then uh, you know. The, also, you have the little bit of the figure four and the spinning toe hold battle, which is always really fun. Like the point where Flair kind of reverses the spinning toe hold into the into uh-huh. a figure four, and then Funk reverses into a small package, and Flair reverses into a small package. Uh, to, yeah. you know that 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 finish is such a great finish, and then you went well, the, the post match, which is incredible, right? Like, yeah, the, the post match almost swallows it. The finish is great, and maybe they would have done a bigger finish if they didn't have the post match. But the finish is great because it underscores, and I feel like I'm always saying this, it underscores the realism of it, right? It makes it seem so much more kind of legit because, you know, 
this is like a re- in real life. Imagine it's going to end on just like a on just like a technicality. You know, it's going to end with like a minor mistake. It's just a slip up. It's all it takes. Right. And, and Flair escapes with the title, but it's not like it stops. Right, like Muda right. runs in almost immediately. Gary Hart tosses the referee. Uh, you know they start. You know Flair's. You got the Muda mist. Then now the hair is red and it's green and, and yellow. The whole it's like a Christmas tree. Uh, a Flair's face basically. And then fuck. Oh, and yeah. then just work him over. And then obviously Sting comes out and you have this whole wild pull apart between these four guys. We're just like you know as you know they try to. Pile drive flare on the the chair, and you know Jim Ross is talking about how they're gonna you know get him again, and just so cool. I mean yeah. that the team of Funk and I mean Muda at this point was I mean as cool a wrestler as you've ever seen, right? You're, you're just like I mean the the face paint and the mist that was obviously you know Kabuki stuff, right? But but the but the the moonsault and the handspring elbow, it's just like I mean there have wrestlers that do moonsaults before Muda, but. There was something about that the first time you saw it. I was like, what in the hell is this? That is incredible. Yeah. Just the way that Muda carried himself. I mean, it's just, I don't even, I don't even know how to say it. There's certain dudes that just walk in the door and you're just like, oh yeah, that's one. You know, and it's, <laughs> it, 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 the, the face paint, the, the moveset, everything is just, I mean, is, is, is intrinsic to it. But yeah, he, he, was, he was absolutely just amazing. Uh, and putting them together was great. You know, I mean, the JTEX Corporation, like you said, it, it flames out, but it fizzles out. But like, it, you know, at its peak, at its inception, I mean, this is, this is, it's just fantastic. And it's so perfect for Gary Hart, right? It's just like having the Texas guys and the Japanese guys like, join forces to sort of take out, you know, the kind of, the the, the Southeastern establishment here, you know, right. <laughs> is, a, is, is like a really, is like a subtle, is a subtly brilliant story. Um uh, yeah, it's 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 just really it, it it's it's super cool and and funk is funk is just it's just such a perfect part of it. Yeah, I watched, I'm looking at it right now at sort of the end of the match and just Terry Funk has got this dazed, bloody look in his face and like they're like women at ringside who are clearly like really unnerved by his presence. <laughs> like they're like recoiling yeah. and kind of like oh, like like the way you might recoil from a really aggressive drunk asshole at a bar. Like, you know, like look, look, I, look, I'm here with my friends. <laughs> That's what the women seem to be saying to yeah. Terry Funk. No, I don't. I know. I, look, I'm here with my friends. I'm not really trying to talk to people right now. <laughs> Get away from me. Um, oh my god he is he, make, he makes everybody uncomfortable he never yeah. turns it off you know he's yeah. always doing this thing and, and, it, and it's I don't know it's, it, 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 it's just a, it's amazing to watch you know, we didn't even talk about the part the, the, the bit where uh, and the build up where where, um, where Funk uh, suffocates Ric Flair with the back that was before this match right where Funk went after no, Flair no no I think that was after Oh, that was after. This yeah, leads that up was to, a, that, that leads up to the I Quit match. Yeah, that leads up to the I Quit match of of because Funk yeah, it's wasn't just, it's so Funk funny. wasn't in that. That was like a tag at a at a. Gosh, let me find out the exact the exact line. Oh, yeah, that yeah. was when Funk, Funk had been suspended for something, and the so that Funk was had, Dick Slater. Yes, that was the Dick Slater thing you were just talking about. Funk came back with like a cast or the bandaged up arm because he had like he had like a. a, a some sort of infection. He had like some like real problematic. Oh, like, yeah, a like, staph puff. infection. I think it was. Yeah, staff I remember infection. Yeah. So yeah. So but he came back and he's like still so he's wearing like the hobo tuxedo with the arm cut off or whatever and and chokes. But like it's it's great. It's great that I mean talk about a moment in time. You're right. This did this imprinted on me too. Uh, and this is it, it. This is sort of 
just the most just sort of it's yeah this is the platonic ideal of wcw or whatever in, in a lot of ways just from the way I, w- I was raised but those moments are just like are, are, are nightmares for me i mean it's just so scary when you remember moments in time like that like the choking thing and it's crazy that also that that we were that like standards and practices was getting involved in this stuff he talked about the no blood and the other match in, in the i quit match i mean that they were just so intimately involved because things were just changing and rules were changing in real time. And this is wheels off stuff for like national television. You know yeah. I mean? They, they, they the, couldn't the plastic bag, I think they got in real trouble for, right? Cause they're just visualizing yeah. somebody choking somebody's little brother with a plastic bag. <laughs> like how many, yeah. how many, how many dry cleaning bag accidents were, did that precipitate? Right. I'm sure at some point I tried to choke somebody with a plastic bag after watching it. Right. I was 13. You were certainly oh, play yeah. wrestling with your friends. You know, at some point, but I even to, when the, but even without the bad influence stuff, like the idea, somebody was just like, well, what should we do to really make this work? It's like, I know let's try to murder Ric Flair. Like, <laughs> no, <laughs> That would really that'll really get the point across. I mean, it was just it was just so great, man. They, I mean, I just I love it. I love it. And there, yeah. I mean, I, I hope that nobody got suffocated from trying that. But it was, I mean, what a moment that was. I mean, yeah, we don't want any deaths. If some kids got like suffocated a little bit. It'd be worth it. I mean, I, you know, like that was a really great <laughs> moment. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. you know what? I mean, nobody wanted to die. Nobody wants to die. I mean, you have a kid choke a little bit. You had to get the bag off their head. You should watch your kids anyway. Um, yeah, well, you know, that was. Uh, I'm looking at now. Fall Brawl '89. Uh, oh was, yeah, was that was that show? Uh, the the semi main of that was Lou. It was a class of the champions, Luger Tommy Rich for the United States title. Which I remember being a great match too. Um, but yeah, this is just looking at this card. You're looking at like the, the Road Warriors, Samoan SWAT team, Freebird Steiners, Steve Williams, Mike Rotunda. I mean, just a real like a load. Even that class of champions is a loaded card full of like all time great wrestlers in Mike Rotunda. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and this and this feud is like you know, so like it, we you put it in the context earlier, but it's like a card. I mean, a, a card, a company that is so so stacked, uh, coming off of a championship feud that is just so so good, right? I mean, just obviously Flair Steamboat, one of the all time feuds uh, that that produced some of the greatest championship matches. And so, like, you just got these two guys in the ring, and they're just like, all right, what do we do? Like, how can we make this better? It's not. That the, the the this match is not that long, you know. It's like fifteen twenty minutes top. Well, I'm looking. What is it? It's not even twenty minutes. No, it's less. But it just. But but it feels like, it feels like like, it feels like everything, especially at the time when you were watching it. Like, what a great match this is, man. Yeah, and and the fact that it really, I mean, it's such a good job of of being wholly satisfying as an individual experience. Um but also very clearly uh, setting up all of these other matches, right? Like yeah. uh, seventeen twenty-three. So that's that's pretty long. Um, but yeah, not it's not thirty-five minutes or anything like that. Uh, no, for sure. I mean, seventeen twenty-three is okay, but but still, I mean, it just but it feels so much bigger. And you're right. By the end, it feels like it, you you realize it's a setup for what for what comes after. But man, it it's the way. I mean, and, and the, the the announcers in this in both of their big matches really set the stakes, right? It's, is this Jim Ross and Bob Cottle who did this? Well, I forgot, but, but this is, but it's just, they, they know how to make the match feel important, right? I mean, Ric Flair and Terry Funk have all the history that you need, not together, obviously, but individually have all the history that you need to make a match feel 
significant and and they 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 build it up right they set it up right and then these two guys just go and knock it out of the ballpark oh my god i'm, just, I'm now i'm watching terry funk stumbling outside the ring making people uncomfortable this is just this this is what this is what wrestling dreams are made of i mean it really is a, it really is close to a perfect match uh, you know, in a way that's in a lot of ways the Flair Steamboat matches were too, but in a very, very different way, right? Like both examples of perfect matches, um, and, but you know, obviously couldn't be uh, more different than than each other. And you know, it's just, no, I mean, you you, talk, you hear Flair, you know, or all these guys really, but you hear Flair talking about going out and do a, doing a Broadway at a house show and calling it on the fly, just depending on how the crowd was feeling that night, and you don't. You know, like you were saying earlier about all the house shows that I mean, you kind of watch the big Flair Steamboat matches and you're like, well, OK, they did a lot of calling it on the fly for, you know, our bell to bell matches on the road. And then they like pulled the best pieces together into a beautiful symphony here on this pay-per-view or whatever, this big show. But you don't it doesn't feel improvised in the way that Flair Funk does. Right. And Flair Funk feels almost like they're reacting to the crowd. They're calling it on the fly and they're and, and it's just about. It's just about being emotionally present, you know. Right. It's about right. being in the moment. And this isn't Flair. There's no formula in this match, right? There isn't Flair yeah. doesn't do any. I mean, he worked a very different formula as a babyface than he does as a heel. But there isn't any Flair moments, really, right? He doesn't do the flay yeah. swap. He doesn't get thrown off the top. There isn't really like you don't notice any like uh, signature Flair stuff in this. And Funk obviously is a guy who doesn't have. I mean, like you said, he doesn't really have signature stuff. He just does. Yeah. There's things that you'll watch Terry Funk matches, and you'll, you know, you've, I've seen, pro, you know, a ton of them over the years. I mean, God, uh, almost. I feels like I've watched almost every Terry Funk match that's on tape because he's one of those yeah. guys that just I like, you know, want, if Terry Funk was in it, I want to watch it. So I, you know, and so much stuff is available now that wasn't before. It's just like there's no reason not to watch all the Terry Funk. Uh, and uh, I don't, you know, like I said, there isn't. He just you get the sense that a lot of times he just is. He's like a, you know, uh, isn't playing with a script, right? He's like, it's like you curb your enthusiasm or something like that. There's an outline, but all the dialogue is improvised, right? You know, like he doesn't, he doesn't really come, he doesn't really seem like he's, he really seems like he's coming up with so much of the stuff on the fly, uh, which oh, makes yeah, him so such a genius. As you're, as you're saying this, this is the post-match. After the post-match beatdown by Muda, after the Sting save, all these guys are, like, it, it sort of reached its resolution Sting and Flair standing in the ring together, and for seemingly no reason at all, Terry Funk just throws a chair into the ring again, like really hard, right at Ric Flair. And Flair bats it down, and for the life of me, it looks like he reacts for real. It just like just drops the title belt and runs out of the ring to hit Terry Funk. I mean, it's like Terry's like like I'm like nobody knows what Terry's doing. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. He looked, he looked like Isaiah. It's so great. He looked like he looked like uh, Isaiah Stewart in the Pistons a couple nights ago. Right? He's like like oh, you're throwing a chair at me. All right, let's go. <laughs> Pull yeah. me away. Yeah. And Flair, and then Flair then just has the title belt in his hand later outside the ring and is just whipping it like like this is the, the title belt is not you know traditionally used as a whip in this format you know it's not it, they, they, I think they kind of deliberately stayed away from that except for really specific moments but there it it looks it feels so real Muda's holding a non folding chair like Muda's holding what. <laughs> Mood is holding like one of those like hard plastic chairs with metal legs. You know, I mean, it's this is just about it's, as real feeling as something can get. It's one of the great, great pull up, wild pull up, post match pull aparts ever. I mean, it's up yeah. there. Like you know, of the when I think of like out that kind of out of control, hold me back stuff. 
this is as good as it gets, right? Obviously, you have such iconic wrestlers and, and, you know, such a big moment. And just like the insanity of, yeah, the point where Flair just gets the gets the chair thrown at him and just bolts out of the ring ready to fight is so good. I mean, I don't know if, it, if that was Flair reacting or not, but he, I, I bought that it was, right? Like, he sold me on the fact that he was pretty fucking pissed at this guy flinging a chair at his head and is going to come, you know, get another piece of him. Uh, no, there's no there's no reason why they would have just been standing in there just exchanging pleasantries before that happened. Like it's like it's over. It's definitely over. It's definitely, you then, definitely then, should be. You definitely could hear Jim Ross saying, "You know, we'll see you next week on WCW Saturday Night, whatever." Right? It felt like he's and then a chair comes the and then a chair comes whipping past his head. You know, yeah. he's like, "Oh wait, wait, wait one second. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 really just incredible stuff. Yeah. It's incredible stuff, and I love the the. Uh, the Sting, Ric Flair, very 1989 high five that sort of closes out the show too. It's like they're standing in the standing in the in the entry in the aisle. You know, Flair is is red and green as you said, and they just dispatch the baddies and they just do just a very formal high five. Yeah, it's great. There's some really great uh, like period, time period moments in that. The, like I mentioned, the hairdos of the Flair ladies, the crowd shots, Jason Hervey. And that's a very, it, we're watching it back. It's like these are it definitely has a it is in a moment in time in a real amusing way. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, Flair Flair himself is so timeless. You know, I mean, his gimmick is predates him by almost a century, you know, but like he's and, and, and he's just he wrestled for so long after this. I mean, fuck, too, right? Same thing. Or it's like, yeah, you know, no, no, but I mean, but Flair particularly, like, you know, you could place him at any moment in his career and it was you could say like, well, that's the best Ric Flair. But for my money, this is sort of my favorite Ric Flair right? this point in time. And to what you were saying before, when he comes out in the sequin robe with two women on each arm. His gimmick sort of makes a little bit more sense. Like, it's, it's not exactly a Rosetta Stone moment or anything, but, like, he comes out. It's 1989. He's smiling ear to ear. It's just, like, this moment of excess, even though he's working babyface. You know, and it's just like, oh, yeah, this is why, this is what Rick's been talking about this whole time. Yeah. You know, it's like this is the, this is the styling and profiling, and it doesn't necessarily make him a bad guy. And right. it's, it's, it's just really, it's just really cool. Yeah, it, it's a, it's, I... I don't know how much this match is canonized. Like, it doesn't feel like it is as much in this era, right? The Flair and Steamboat stuff was. I think the I Quit match is is as well. I think that's the most ma- match that people remember the most from this feud. Mm-hmm. This is the best one, though. And it really is, like, it is, if, if folks are listening to this um, and haven't watched this match... It is an absolute uh, joy, like it is. It's it's just delightful way to spend seventeen minutes. Like you know what I mean? Like you're not gonna. It, it, you mentioned that you're a guy who gets a little squeamish about the heavier blood stuff. It's got not a nice amount, but it's not gonna gross you out, right? There's no no, no points where like there's fountains coming out of people's. For some of the matches in my book, can be pretty gross. I don't think this is gross, and it obviously has no, no, just no, no, a, no. two of the two of the absolute everybody's list of top 10 wrestlers of all time have got to include both of these guys, right? Yeah. At, you know, they, uh, both, I mean, one of the things that makes, you know, great performers of any stripe so great is longevity, right? There are flair and funk peaks 
that are, you know, you can't say this is apex flair or apex funk necessarily, right? Because I don't know. I mean, you know, you could say apex funk was 82 or you could say apex funk was 97 or, you know, like, or flair, yeah. same thing. But these are definitely at peak, you know, while they're guys with lots of peaks, these are peaks for both the guys, yeah. right? Like performance well, think, wise think- and, and obviously the story built in, just so good. Yeah, no, no. Seeing them in the rain together, like I said before, it just looks. It just looks like it's just it has it. Has, it's it's a, it's an all time great match. And peak. I mean, they're both clearly at at respective peaks. I think that Funk's career, you know, his sort of itinerant career at this point probably doesn't help the legacy of their feud in general. I mean, it's it's not one that that. And I think it's I think it's aging well. I think people have more respect for it now than maybe they did five years ago or something. You know, the feud in general, but. But I, but I do think that, you know, Steamboat Flair, I don't know if Steamboat Flair took the, takes the oxygen out of the room or what, but it's, it's uh, you know, this one, this one doesn't have the same resonance, I think, with a lot of fans, but it's better. Like, it is just, it's, it's, all time, it's an all-time great. And maybe, yeah. it's that, maybe it's that Terry just sort of showed, turned up, you know, this, he, he was just a short-termer, and we're kind of trained to think of those sort of, those sort of, you know, territory era, like, you know, championship foes in a different way. You know, I mean, they just sort of, if you, if you turn up just to lose to the champ, that doesn't have the same sort of feeling as like people who coexisted for so long. I don't know. There's a lot of reasons, but if you go back and watch this and the cool thing is it's not just this match, you can go find every promo. You can, you know, you can find Ric Flair winning the title or retaining the title. He beat Steamboat and that's when the whole thing started. Uh, when you can watch the entire thing from the that moment until the end, Thunderdome cage matches a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, you can watch everything. There's, an, so there's an incredible good. Arn Anderson Muda match from the Power Hour uh, oh. that, that, that that's on YouTube. Jim Ross says something really racist in it. Uh, it's fun. That's really fun to watch, uh, but also amusing for the, the the Jim Ross said some really racist shit on TV. Uh, there's like, uh, yeah, I mean the the um, oh yeah, you if you've never seen Terry Funk, Eddie Guerrero, that's five minutes long and it's great. It's like you know, you're you're de- delight. You'll just enjoy. Couldn't enjoy five minutes of two guys wrestling like that more. And, and you know, a uh, flare uh, Funk Steamboat from the Clash of Champions after the mm-hmm. uh, is really yes. great. Uh, yeah, it was just uh, yeah, every part of this. Um, the best thing about this feud is that like like. I mean, obviously things are a little bit more A to B in this era than they are now, um, but and a little bit more clear than they were in just the territory days of the NWA when when dudes we know Flair was just all over the place, like you were saying. But this feud, like the Wikipedia page, is not confusing. You know, when you like like to, uh, say that metaphorically, I'm pretty sure it's pro- I'm, pro- I'm fairly confident it wouldn't be. Like this is a, this is a feud that you could like ingest like a movie, and it's. And it like earns those sort of like high level stakes. It's so fun. It's so fun. And this match in particular is just, just, just incredible. Yeah. So, uh, David, uh, thanks so much for coming on doing with this with me. It was a ton of fun. Uh, why don't you? You've got things going on that people should know about. Why don't you plug those things real quick for me? Before I, we... I, uh, I have a podcast called The Masked Man Show. My feed. We, we now it's not just me. We have a whole feed. The Ringer Wrestling Show. Uh, it's like a three podcast a week situation. We got uh, Evan Mack and Mac Maney on Tuesdays, Cheapy with Peter Rosenberg, uh, and uh, and that guy Greg, and occasionally me on Wednesdays, and then me and Kaz do the Mass Man Show on Thursdays. And um, 
we're working on some cool other stuff that, you know, eventually we're going to be able to announce, but there's, um, you know, there's some, there's some fun stuff in the works and, uh, and, you know, I'm keeping busy. Hopefully it'll end up with, you know, fun podcasty stuff that people want to hear. Press box too, right? Oh, yeah, the press box. I thought we were doing wrestling specific. Yeah, well, just yeah. give me all the, your stuff. Let everybody press know. Box, press, box is, press box is twice a week. I'm I'm pretty much only on the first half. Brian's doing, Brian, my co-host, Brian Curtis, is doing interviews on Fridays, and, and I'm hanging out on Mondays uh, with him just, just covering, you know, the media and, and everything else. And, uh, and yeah, the ringer.com, man. I still do, like, art for that website and with a huge team of other people, and and uh, we have the best writing in the world, so go check it out. Fun, fun website. I was a Grantland fan back before uh, the Ringer, and it's still something I check out of, of pretty regularly. Uh, I don't really listen to wrestling podcasts; I mostly listen to basketball podcasts. So it's like I, I'm, hey, I'm hey, hey, listen. If I'm if I'm gonna if I'm gonna waste if I'm gonna like if I have an hour to blow on a train out of nowhere, it's probably gonna be basketball for me too. Okay. So you know, it's uh, but but uh, but now you know now I mean now we just gotta. People should just be listening to your podcast and my podcast and not basketball. That will That's make true. That's a good point. Yeah, good point. The basketball is fine, but you should be listening to Way of the Blade. You should be listening to the Mass Man Show uh, and uh, and all of that. Uh, it was great. It was great chatting you. We will be back next week with uh, another Way of the Blade.